privacy's become a big issue in our society in recent years. Uh, with the growth of things like the internet, uh, private information is not always guaranteed to stay private. Almost every week we hear a story about some company or some government organisation that's accidentally released all kinds of confidential information. We've seen whole newspapers in, in, in England closed down for phone hacking, listening in to people's private phone calls and phone messages. Now, more than ever, people are able to find out things about us that we may not want them to know. And it's not just that people know that information, it's what they may do with the information that worries us. See, it really doesn't matter to me if people know my credit card number. The problem is, if they start using my credit card number without me knowing it or without my permission. One of the things that becomes obvious when we read through John's Gospel is that Jesus knows people. John keeps saying that, that he knows what's inside people. He knows the way that they think. He knows what's in their minds, what's in their hearts. But this isn't some kind of invasion of privacy that people should be fearful of. In fact, far from being something we should worry about, it's a reassuring thing that Jesus knows us because he uses that information for our benefit, for our good. Now, before we jump into this chapter from John's Gospel, we need to make sure that we're clear about who the Samaritans are. Understanding who they are and their relationship to the Jews is quite crucial to understanding the conversation that's about to take place between Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well in chapter 4. So let me give you a brief history of Israel. Uh, everybody sitting up straight and listening. Uh, under King David, the nation of Israel was at its largest the land that belonged to the nation of Israel was divided up among the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, after David came Solomon, and after Solomon had died, the kingdom was ultimately divided. The part in the north, which was made up of nine of the tribes, that took the name Israel, but the temple was in Jerusalem in the south. Uh, they had to come. They, they had to come up with their own worship practices up in the north because the south was where Jerusalem and the temple were. So the people in the north, the people of Israel, uh, began to worship at Mount Gerizim. The section in the south, which became known as Judah because of the main tribe in the south, uh, this is also where we get the name Jews from. They were the people from Judah. Now, paying careful attention because there will be a quiz on this this morning and you won't be getting any morning tea unless you get more than 60%. The northern kingdom, Israel, was eventually invaded by the Assyrians in 722 BC. Most of the people were taken off into captivity in Assyria, but those that remained ended up intermarrying with the Assyrians and with the other people that were living around them. They became kind of half-brothers for the people of Judah and they also became known as the Samaritans, named after the capital city in their area, Samaria. 
But they were hated by the Jews. They were seen as being traitors for intermarrying with the nations around them. And they were seen as being heretics because of their religious practices that they just made up themselves. As far as the Jews were concerned, they didn't worship God in the right way or in the right place. The Samaritans really didn't like the Jews, but the Jews hated the Samaritans. So with all of that in mind, we come to the story here in chapter 4. Jesus is heading north from Judah to Galilee, and the quickest way for him to get there is to go through Samaria. And they've stopped, it's the middle of the day, they've stopped at Jacob's well. The disciples have headed off into town to get some food, but Jesus decides that he's going to stay sitting at the well. And a Samaritan woman comes to draw water and Jesus asks her for a drink. Now to us, that looks like a fairly innocent enough question. But what Jesus has just done would have been pretty much unthinkable back in those days. The Jews and Samaritans both thought that drinking from a cup owned by the other would actually make them ceremonially unclean. And not only that, but men just didn't strike up conversations with women in that way, especially a a Jewish man and a Samaritan woman. So it's very strange that Jesus would ask the Samaritan woman for a drink. And the woman points that out to him in verse number 9. Jesus responds to it, but he actually uses a funny expression here in verse 10. Have a look. John chapter 4 and verse number 10. Jesus says this to the woman. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. When Jesus says the gift of God, he he could be talking about eternal life. But in the context of this conversation, I think he actually means the Bible. Jewish people believe that the greatest gift that God had given to his people was his word, the scriptures. So what I think Jesus is saying there in verse 10 is, if you knew your Bible you'd know who I was and you'd be asking me for a drink of living water. That idea of living water was one that the Old Testament prophets often talked about. They talked about the day that God would establish his kingdom and that there'd be living water, endless supplies of fresh water. Zechariah makes this promise about what things are going to be like when the kingdom finally comes. He says... On that day, living water will flow out from Jerusalem, half to the eastern sea and half to the western sea, in summer and in winter. Living water, fresh water, flowing out across the land, year in, year out. Now we don't tend to think of water as being particularly special today. It's so common for us. It's the stuff that comes out of your tap. It's always there. It's always fresh, always clean. But that certainly isn't the case most of the world over. Close to one billion people don't have access to clean drinking water in this world. 
Three and a half million people die each year because of dirty water. That's close to the population of Sydney dying every year because they can't get access to clean water. And that's what it's like in our world today with all of the technology advances that we have. So imagine what it would have been like back in Jesus' day. Clean water was a precious commodity back in those days. So the idea of living water, fresh water, flowing out year in, year out, well, that would be like heaven for those people back then, wouldn't it? One of the things you notice when you read through this passage is the similarities in the conversations between last week and this week. Now, last week we looked at the story of Nicodemus who comes to see Jesus in the middle of the night and today we're looking at the conversation Jesus has with the Samaritan woman but the similarities are are definitely there. Uh, For both of them there's this confusion about what it is that Jesus is actually saying. Jesus is trying to talk about big spiritual concepts but they just keep thinking that he's talking about earthly things. Nicodemus is confused by this whole idea of new birth. He says to Jesus, I mean, it's as if I can re-enter my mother's womb. And Jesus says to this woman that he's able to give living water, but the woman says, you haven't even got a bucket and the well is really deep. But there's one big point of difference between these two, between this woman and Nicodemus. Nicodemus was the complete insider. He was a Jew, he was a man, he was a well-respected religious leader, he was educated, he was morally upright. But the Samaritan woman, well, she's pretty much the complete outsider, outcast. First of all, she's a Samaritan, then she's a woman She would have been uneducated, as all women would have been back in those days. And and as we'll see in just a moment, she probably has a fairly questionable past. But more similarity between them is there. Jesus offers both of them the same thing. He offers both of them eternal life. So it makes no difference to Jesus if you're an insider or an outcast, a Samaritan or a Jew, educated, uneducated, pillar of the society or shady past. Jesus is willing to make the offer of new birth, of living water, eternal life to anyone who's willing to believe in him. But they do have to come to that point of believing. The remarkable thing is, It's the uneducated Samaritan woman who gets to that point first. She's the one who gets it. She's the one who believes. The woman's confusion, though, does continue in their conversation. If you have a look at verse number 13... Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water 
welling up to eternal life. But did you see how the woman responds to Jesus? She says, I'd love to have some of that living water if it didn't, if it meant I didn't have to trudge out here to the well every day. And then Jesus throws in what sounds like a completely left field comment. He says to the woman, go and get your husband and bring him here. And the woman says to Jesus, I don't have a husband. And Jesus says, you're right. You've had five and the guy that you're with now, he's not your husband, is he? Now, it could be that this woman has just been dreadfully unfortunate in her life that five of her husbands have died but it's more likely that she's had shall we say a questionable history but don't misunderstand what Jesus is saying here he's not trying to say this to make her feel guilty the purpose is not to make her feel bad about her her life and her circumstances his purpose in saying this is to show that he knows who she is. He knows this woman, even though they've never met before. He's showing that he is God, that he knows what goes on in people's lives. And the woman recognises that Jesus is more than just a man. She, She initially thinks that he's probably a prophet, And if Jesus' suggestion that she should go and get her husband sounded a little bit left field, well, what the woman says next seems to fit that same category. It sounds very left field. After Jesus has said to her, yes, you've, you've had five husbands and the guy that you're with now is not your husband, look at what she says. Verse 19. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. I think what she's saying here is, because you're a Jew, I bet you're going to tell me that I have to go down to Jerusalem if I want to be serious about worshipping God, aren't you? But look at what Jesus says, verse 21. Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation comes from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshippers must worship him in spirit and in truth. Worshipping God, Jesus says, isn't about mountains or temples. True worshippers worship God in spirit and truth. They worship God with their whole hearts, with hearts that have been changed by the Holy Spirit. And they worship God in truth, in the way that God says they are to worship him. They'll approach God on God's terms, not on rules that they've made up. And I love the way this conversation ends. After everything Jesus has said, the woman says, 
when the Messiah comes, he'll explain everything to us. And Jesus says to her, I am the Messiah. Well, the woman races off to town to tell everyone that the Messiah is out sitting at Jacob's well. Now, time doesn't permit us to look at the rest of what this chapter says, but let me point out one thing for you. Uh, The disciples come back and find Jesus talking with the Samaritan woman. They've come back with food and there's another confused conversation where, where they're saying, where Jesus is saying, my food is to do the work of my father who sent me. And the disciples are saying, did somebody else bring him some food? And Jesus is saying something that the disciples don't quite get. But have a look at what Jesus says in verse number 35. He says to the disciples, do not say four more months and then the harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for the harvest. I think the harvest that Jesus has in mind there is people coming into the kingdom. He's saying to the disciples, don't think that the harvest, the coming of the kingdom, is something that's way off in the future. The harvest is ready now. Look, there it is walking up the road. And I'm sure what Jesus wants them to look at is not wheat in a field, but the crowd of Samaritans who are coming up from the town to Jacob's well to come and hear what Jesus has to say. Now, that must have been a bit of a shock to the disciples that Jesus is suggesting that the Samaritans can be saved. But that's what Jesus is saying. This message of eternal life is for everyone who believes. Now, I think the story of the woman at the well is one of my favourite episodes from John's Gospel. But what's the practical application for us today? Well, let me suggest two things. First is this. We don't worship God in places. We worship God in spirit and truth. The point that Jesus made about not worshipping in Jerusalem or on Mount Gerizim, well, I think that's a lesson that we've got to keep learning today. Jesus told the woman that the time would come when true worshippers would worship God in spirit and truth. Well, that's the time that we're living in. It's not about temples or sacred buildings. It's not about worshipping God at special times or in special places. We're to worship God with our whole lives. We're to worship God in our homes and in our workplaces, in our social lives. We're to worship God with our family and we're to worship God with our friends. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 12 about offering your your whole lives as a sacrifice, that that's your act of spiritual worship for God. Now, don't get me wrong, meeting together as Christians is important. But sometimes we have the idea that we worship God for one hour on Sunday and that the rest of the week is ours to do as we please. That's not the kind of worship that God wants. God wants whole lives devoted to serving him, worshipping him in all that we do. But the second practical application for us is to remember that Jesus offers this living water to everyone. 
irrespective of who they are, irrespective of the, of the life that they've lived, irrespective of their background. You may be a respected Pharisee like Nicodemus, but you still need to come to that point of believing in Jesus and accepting that offer of forgiveness and living water that Jesus makes. You may be a Samaritan woman with a questionable history, but the offer of living water is still there to those who believe. So Jesus doesn't set some standard that you need to attain before he's willing to even consider offering you eternal life. He doesn't say you need to perform at a certain level before he's going to consider accepting you. His offer of eternal life is for everyone who's willing to believe in him, to trust in him. Good news for us and great news for sharing.